We ask that you would turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of John as we continue our verse-by-verse exposition of it. Chapter 13 of the book of John, verses 18 through 30. Chapter 13, book of John, verses 18 through 30. And if you found the sacred scripture, would you please acknowledge it by saying, Precious is the name. And we ask that you will stand for the reading of God's inerrant, infallible word. John 13, verses 18 through 20. And the word of God says this. I am not speaking to all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of the disciples whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After then, he had taken the morsel, or after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do Do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy whatever you need for the feast, or that he should give some money to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. May the word of God be blessed in this place and may it be treated and received as it truly is, not the word of man, but the word of God. You may be seated. This passage right here picks up the narrative that we were focused upon last week when we were taught that Jesus is God's servant and 
our Savior. Jesus is the one who serves us by redeeming us through his blood. Jesus is the one that by washing our sins away gives us life and life eternally. Jesus serves us by setting the example of humility that we all should exhibit. Jesus serves us as being an advocate before the Father God. Well, Pastor, what is an advocate? An advocate is a person who comes to our aid and pleads our case before a judge. An advocate offers support, strength, counsel. They intercede for us when it's necessary. The Bible tells us that we too have an advocate, and that advocate is Jesus Christ, our Lord. 1 John 2.1 says, My little children, Jesus speaking here, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Parakleos is the word for advocate, and Jesus is that advocate for us. John 14, 16 says, And I, Jesus speaking, and I will ask the Father, and he will send you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be with you. Parakleos here means to be a helper, an advocate, or a counselor. In our human court system, we have advocates. We call them attorneys. We call them lawyers because they have spent so much time stuttering, uh, studying the inaccuracies or the intricacies of the actual law that they can navigate through those things with speed, with accuracy, with precision. John paints that same kind of picture when he speaks of Jesus Christ as being our advocate because he recognizes that God's law pronounces each and every one of us as being guilty on all counts. Why is that, Pastor? Because each and every one of us, including the one speaking to you, has violated God's standards. We have rejected God's right to rule over our lives. We have committed sins either even after the coming to the knowledge of the truth. Hebrews 10, 26 says this, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. Romans 1, 21 through 23 says it like this, For although they knew God, they did not honor God or give him thanks, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creepy things. First Timothy 2.4 
All who desire to be saved must come to the knowledge of the truth. Do we recognize this morning that the only punishment for our sins should be an eternity in hell? But because of the Lamb of God who was crucified, who bled and died, our sins have been forgiven past, present, and future. Think about the conversation that goes on between Christ Jesus and his Father. Father, I know this person has sinned and violated all of our commands. They are guilty as charged. There's no doubt about it. There's no question. However, because of my sacrifice made for them, their debt has been paid in full because you, O oh God, have applied my righteousness to their life. And because they have trusted in me for salvation and forgiveness, and because I have paid the price, they must be proclaimed not guilty because there's no debt for them to pay. That's what Romans is saying in Romans 8 and 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus is our advocate. 1 John 1 and 9. When we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from them. You know, when we really come and confess our sins to a holy God, we must agree not with our understanding, but with God's understanding that sin is as bad as it is. And that the punishment for that would be eternal separation from God, except from the sufficient payment that has been made by Christ Jesus to redeem each and every one of us who believe in him. You know, one of the greatest things when you think about the incredible compassion of Jesus as our advocate, that Jesus too has been tempted, he's been rejected, he's been betrayed, he's been overlooked, he's been misunderstood, he's been abused. So Jesus does not just represent us theoretically but he represents us through experience. He has lived the same life that we have lived, and yet he is never falling to sin. He has never successfully given in to temptation, so he has the right to be our high priest. He has the right to perfectly fulfill God's law. You see, you can't get that from an earthly advocate. They can only plead our case from external evidence. But our Heavenly Father knows our hearts, and he pleads our case based on what he has placed in our hearts. And our holy God accepts his son's advocacy for us. John 17, 24 says, Father... I desire that they also, who you have given me, because you love me before the foundations of the world. So our position with Christ Jesus is one of righteousness. Romans 4, 20 through 25 sums that up. 
no unbelief made him waver concerning the promises of God. Personal pronoun him rare refers to Jesus. No unbelief made Jesus waver concerning the promises of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave God glory, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And because of that, it was counted to him as righteousness. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, speak to our hearts this morning. Inform us through the truth of your word. We're in the midst of a great storm of secular thought and satanic trials against all that is righteous, against all your word has proclaimed to be true. God, let your word be true, though everyone a liar. For you are justified in your words, and you prevail when you judge. Hear our prayers, O Lord. There is a famine in the land, not a famine of food nor a famine of water, but a famine of the truth of your word. Help us today. Engage our hearts. Transform our minds. It is in the precious name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we ask it all. And all God's children said, Amen. This morning, this story picks up as Jesus is betrayed, but we don't see Jesus show bitterness. He's betrayed and he's not bitter because he recognizes that scripture is being fulfilled. He's betrayed and he's not bitter because he understands that one of his 12 will betray him. He's betrayed and he's not bitter because he even has the consciousness to ask the betrayer what you have to do. Do it quickly. Jesus understands, as we see, as we enter into this passage, that Scripture must be fulfilled. Look at John 13, 18. I am not speaking to all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But Scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Jesus clearly knows what's going on here. He clearly knows that there's about to be some treachery in the ranks of the twelve. In fact, if you just look at Jesus' history here, he's already told us about this before. Look at what he says in John 6, 70-71. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet, one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Again, look what Jesus does. John 12, 4 through 8. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she might keep it 
for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Again, John 13, 2. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So now we should see Jesus make it clear once again that not all of his disciples are clean. You know, he's referring back to verse 17 of chapter 13 that we dealt with last week when he says, bless, we are blessed by doing what he has told us. Now he's telling them clearly, I'm not referring to all of you. I know who I have chosen. So why is he being so adamant here? Jesus wants to take away from his disciples and he wants to take away from us any notion that he has chosen someone amiss, that he has made some mistake in judgment. He knew from the beginning that Judas wasn't with him. He knew from the beginning that he had chose every one of them and God had put it in his heart to choose the one that would betray him. That's why he says, and yet one of you is a devil. The reason he now takes pains to show the inclusion of Judas, he wants them to make sure that they do not think this is an oversight. This is some sign of weakness. He wants their faith to be strengthened in this hour. He wants to make the argument that not all are elected to salvation. You know, we don't like to talk about it in the church, but the Bible clearly teaches that some are elected to salvation, others are elected to reprobation. It's one or the other. The reason Jesus chose the one who would betray him was to fulfill Scripture. What is Jesus talking about? This text comes from Psalm 41 and 9. And think about the consequence or the context, rather, of what David was dealing with. David was given this mournful lament because he was dealing with a painful experience. He was being mocked by his enemies. He had been betrayed by his best friend. He was suffering a debilitating and what seemed at that time like a life-threatening illness. And to make matters worse, the one that was coming against him was his best friend. Look what David says. Even my close friend whom I trusted, he who shared my bread has lifted his heel against me. You know, I've learned a couple of things in 20 years of pastoring, but most importantly, people that you never let in really never can hurt you. It takes the one that you have trusted to really hurt you. Misplaced trust can turn a triumph into a tragedy. Because we all expect our enemies to be treacherous. We all expect for them to talk behind our backs. But betrayal that comes from a close friend, especially a close friend that's only received kindness, and then they turn and lift their heel against you. That's where the pain comes from. John 13 and 18, 
Jesus applies this to his relationship with Judas. Judas has only received kindness and love, even last week, foot washing from Jesus. This enables us to see the pain that Jesus underwent, even though he knew from the beginning that he would betray him to fulfill scripture. And there's really no stretch in imagination here to think that Psalm 41 and 9 is a messianic psalm. That's not what I'm saying. It's built on the fact of what's in 2 Samuel 17, 12 through, or rather 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16 in Psalm 2. David has always been seen as a type, as a model of the greater son, Jesus Christ, to come, the promised Messiah. And then we see so many times that the great themes of David's life were repeated and picked up in the New Testament, especially those that focus on the suffering and the betrayal and the discouragement. David was great and he suffered greatly. But this is important. His greatness did not exempt him from pain and tears, and his greatness never made him bitter. As Christians, we must use the same model. We must recognize that sometimes we're going to have to deal with pain and tears and trials and tribulations and betrayal. But because we believe in a God who tells us, all things work together for good for those who love the Lord and those are called according to his purpose that we never become bitter because of it. You know, in Eastern hospitality and courtesy, it was always underscored that betrayer, betrayal is most awful when the one who betrayed you is someone who has shared bread with you. Because to share bread with somebody speaks of what? Intimacy. I don't sit down and eat with everybody. Because everybody, we don't have it like that. But those that I bake bread with, those that I invite to my home and I go to theirs, says something about them and about me. And about the intimacy we share. The damaging part of this betrayal, this lifting of the heel, which in Hebrew literally means he made his heel great against me, or he made me have a great fall, or he has taken cruel advantage of me, or he walked out on me. I want you to feel the pain here. You need to understand something, because this was true then and this is true now. Not everyone who is close to Jesus shares closeness to Jesus. Now, I want you to understand the sentence there. T-O denotes contact. It denotes being beside. T-O-O is an affirmative to a negative. It means that you are rightly connected to Jesus. You know, many people stand beside Jesus, but they're not with Jesus. Jesus even said, Matthew 15 and 8, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far away from me. Do you stand beside Jesus, but you're not really with him? You have not truly accepted him as Lord and Savior? 
you have not decided that I'm going to divorce myself from all other loyalty and put myself firmly in the center of God's will. Jesus goes on in verse 19 when he says, I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Even though he's about to be betrayed, for not, for not a second, don't take Jesus as some hapless, bewildered victim or someone who's bitter. Even with all the treachery that's going on, Jesus understands that this too shall pass, that weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning, that this is for the redemptive purposes of his mission. That's why he explains to the disciples, the reason I'm telling you now about this impending betrayal, that when it happens, you will believe that I am he. You see, they were having a hard time understanding that he was truly who he said he was. They found it difficult to understand the words he shared with them about going to the cross and dying and coming back in three days. They found it hard to deal with the fact that he tells them that I'm leaving you and going to the Father and you should be happy for me. Look at John 14, 28 through 29. You have heard it said to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. It was only through his resurrection and his exhortation, the gift of the Spirit, that they would ever really understand who Jesus was. But here he lays the groundwork. He wants to make sure that he gives them enough strength that they won't scatter when the crucifixion happens because he knows that his resurrection is going to vindicate everything that he's ever taught them. Jesus said in John 13, 20, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. So if you receive Jesus, you receive the Father God. This is closely parallel to what he says in Matthew 10 and 40. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. They were and we are, as disciples of Christ, we are to proclaim and bear his message with his authority to an unbelieving world. Is this relative? Of course it's relative. You know, many people have problems with me because I use so much scripture, and I tell you now, as we get closer into our times, you're going to like me even more or even less because I'm going to use even more scripture. And the reason is we live in a world that has been turned upside down that has told you that everything that your mother, your grandmother, and the church has ever told you is a lie. 
Now, yeah, I'm sure my mom told me some lies, and I'm a grandparent now. I've lied to my grandchildren. But the church has never done that. And you have to have the Word of God as a foundation to contrast what you hear every day. Because if you don't have a map, you're never going to find a destination. And they don't want you to find a destination. They want you confused. They want evil to be perceived as good and validated. You've got to see it coming and recognize. You know, Elder, Elder Rice and Elder Kelly, I believe the Church of Jesus Christ, and I believe this church specifically is going to grow, but I believe that there's going to be contraction before expansion. Because this world is going to make such a great divide that they're going to be on one side saying, well, this is what we believe. And you're going to have to be on the other side saying, and this is what we believe, and decide I'm never going to cross that line. Because they're going to put you in that position. And they're going to use every way to dismiss your beliefs, to make you seem as if you are out of step with history, to make you seem judgmental and hateful. But that's when you're going to have to learn to depend on the intimacy that you have with God and his son, Jesus Christ. You've got to recognize that is going to happen. John 20, 21 says, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. The disciples stood before the cross, and I don't think they completely understood it. Only John was there, so the rest of them dealt with it by experience. But I think after the resurrection, we see that there was a certain assurance that came into their lives when they saw him again at the beach, at the breakfast on the beach with his disciples. These words, the one I send, means broadly that the disciples that he was sending then, and it also speaks to us now as he is also sending us, we are to be messengers of Christ Jesus in every age that bring the gospel of Christ Jesus to unbelievers. And our goal through the power of Christ is that they will receive the message. Because to hear and receive the message results in belief in the message. Faith comes by what? Hearing and hearing the word of God. Jesus is betrayed and yet not bitter because he knows the one who's going to betray him. Look at verses 21 and 22. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another uncertain of whom he spoke. Now, up to this point, 
Jesus has been speaking in a roundabout way if you're not really listening. If you're listening, you've got example after example that he's speaking about Judas. The 12 was already disorientated because Jesus is talking to them about death, redemption, about coming back again later on, but leaving to go with the Father. And I'm sure some of them, when they heard this notion of the betrayal of Jesus, weren't really worried. I mean, they've been with him three and a half years now. They've seen Jesus raise the dead, Jesus feed the hungry, Jesus heal the sick, Jesus calms the storm. So what's betrayal compared to all these things? What possible disaster could defall Christ that he could not overcome. But you see, Jesus here is deeply troubled in his spirit. It was obviously visible to the disciples. So he testifies here. And he testifies that one of them will betray him. This is reminiscent to me of John 7, 7, when he says to them, the world cannot hate you but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. So he makes this bold public declaration. Most of the time when you see this word testify used in John's gospel, it's about testifying of Jesus. But here he's testifying to them about himself. And he says, one of you is going to betray me. And we see as he's about to reveal the betrayer, the evilness in the heart of the betrayer doesn't lessen, but it grows. And the other disciples become intrigued. Verse 23, it says, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. This phrase, the disciple whom Jesus loved, is first introduced here. It appears again in 19, 26 through 27, and again in 22 through or 20, verse, chapter 20, verse 2 through 9, and then again in chapter 21, verses 20 through 23. The disciple whom Jesus loved, we recognize as John, not John the Baptist, but John, who is the author of this gospel. And we, we can just see him there reclining on the left side of Jesus. And I think it's really interesting here that what happens in verses 24 and 25 really shows a contrast in the character and the behavior of one of the leaders, if not the leader, of the disciples. Look what happens in 24 and 25. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. Simon Peter is always the one that speaks out in any situation. But here he's going through the disciple that Jesus loves. So he asked the disciple that Jesus loves, ask him who he's speaking to. And it goes on. 
So that disciple leaned back against Jesus and said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus then gives them this blunt prediction. And they still don't catch it. We see that John, the disciple that Jesus loves, leans back because they're reclining at table. And this puts him right in the chest area of Jesus. And he asks them the question, who is it? And then Jesus shares with him in 26. Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Jesus was betrayed, but not bitter. And then he asked his betrayer to do what you're going to do quickly. I think it's apparent by looking at the text that Jesus spoke in almost whispers here. John heard what he said, but I don't think it's any indication that he truly understood it. The others didn't hear it at all, and they were still confused about who exactly it was who was going to betray him. This word behind morsel, so meon, literally means a morsel of bread or a morsel of meat that was dipped into a sauce and then consumed. It's kind of like you and I, well, I'm from the South, maybe you want, but you and I would sop with a biscuit, gravy or something. It's a piece of solid food meant for dipping. Jesus is able to give this morsel, and you, you got to get this, Jesus is able to give this morsel of food to Judas so quickly without having to pass it to anyone. I told you the disciple he loved was on his left, but Judas was on his right. Do you understand that the person who's on your right is the person who sits in the place of honor? that even though he knew from the beginning that he was going to betray him, he gave him the position of honor. Is what level of humility is that teaching us that we are sometimes to work with people that we recognize do not have our best interest at hand? But we trust God enough that we trust the outcome. We don't trust them, but we trust the outcome. That God is going to do something with that. Romans 12. I want to show you, Jesus is living out scripture here when he puts him on the right hand, the place of honor. Romans 12, 17 through 21 says this. Repay no evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peacefully with all. Stop right there. You can't make somebody be peaceful, but as far as you are concerned, you can live peacefully toward them. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. 
for it is written, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. To the contrary, listen, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We see in 27 here. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Look at the gentleness and the courtesy that Jesus displays even in the moment that he feeds his betrayer from his own hand. He gives them this final gesture of love, which reminds us of last week that our pastor says he loved his own until the end, even if that love was not reciprocal. You know, love doesn't actually have to be paid back, but it's supposed to be passed on because love says something about you. It says more about you than the person being loved. It affirms who you say you are. In this final act of love, it was met with the fact that Satan enters totally into his body and brings Judas totally into judgment. We see here that instead of breaking his heart and bringing him to contrition, it hardened his resolve and he was able to totally possess him. Jesus tells him to do what you're going to do quickly. Verses 28 and 29, I want you to see the confusion that still exists. Now no one at the table knew what he said or why he said this. Some thought because Judas has the money bad, Jesus was telling him, buy what you need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. No one else around that table understood what Jesus was saying. Even the beloved disciple with his head in his chest did not completely understand what was going on. They knew that at the Passover, that on Thursday evening, the Sabbath was the next day that you could go and buy things that you might need, especially things that were things of necessity. They knew also that the gates were left open from midnight on so that the poor could come in and be given, beggars could come in and they could be giving things. So they were confused about what Jesus' instructions might have been. And then in verse 30 it says, so after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. And it was night. I'm thinking, and we know it was night, but was it also night in his very soul? Had darkness completely consumed him? He was solely sold out to Satan. There was no recourse now but to obey the words of Jesus. Jesus makes it clear here that no one takes his life 
but that he voluntarily lays it down. Now, there are many commentators that want to speculate about the motives of Judas. It's been argued that Judas was trying to precipitate a decision by Jesus to take political power. You know, I would rather stick with the reason that Scripture clearly provides for what Judas did and that it was ordained by a sovereign God and that it also produced in accordance and delivered exactly what Scripture wanted to be fulfilled. But I do have a question. It's hard for me, honestly, to look at the actions of verses 25 through 27 when Jesus dips the morsel into the bowl and he gives it to Judas. I'm overwhelmed in my spirit of this gracious act of love that is rejected. And scripture says that Satan entered into him fully. And Jesus says, what you're going to do, do quickly. So my question for you this morning, for those of you who are before me in the sanctuary and those of you who are watching the broadcast, what are you prepared to do? Are you prepared to respond to the offer of Jesus, his offer of love that's being directed at you this morning? Are you prepared to accept Jesus' gift of love and receive abundant and eternal life? Or will you just reject it and allow Satan to enter your heart and reside and rule there? A great theologian once said, Tina Turner, what's love got to do with it? Well, the Gospel of John alone the word love is used 40 times. John's gospel begins and ends with love. John starts off in John 3.16, For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And then John follows that wonderful statement with a warning. John 3.19 and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. Then John tells us that Jesus is on a mission and that he's been prepared for this mission by his Father. John 3, 35 through 36. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. Then Jesus goes back and he exposes our parentage. He tells us in John 8, 42. And Jesus said to them, If God was your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Jesus goes on to show us sacrificial love in John 10, 17. For this reason, God loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. And then he shows us that this sacrifice is not for him alone, but for each and every one of us that calls ourselves Christians. John 12, 
25, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world, that's the qualifier, whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. John teaches us that this love is universal toward all of those who love Christ Jesus. John 13, 34, a new commandment, Jesus speaking, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And you know, this love should not become a burden, but it should come from a heart of obedience for us who are Christians. John 14, 15 says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Love for God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit requires us to separate from this world. John 15, 19, if you were of this world, the world would love you because the world loves its own. But because you're not of this world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. John 17 23, Jesus speaking, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Our God offers us a promise of everlasting love through the finished work of Jesus Christ our Lord on the cross. So the question still remains to you, it's still on the floor. What are you prepared to do about this? Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, how precious is the blood of the Lamb, your Lamb, your Son, who takes away the sins of this world. Let us recognize that every time throughout the Gospel of John that your son Jesus contrasts those who belong to him and the world. He's showing a picture of the great divide. Those that are not of him, this world, and those that he has come into the world to take out of the world because they belong to him. Let us recognize the urgency of these commands that are expressed throughout the Gospel of John. And then, Lord, let us respond to this gracious invitation to invite your Son, Jesus Christ, through faith into our lives, to give our lives over, to exchange our lives for the life that he's given for us for us to receive that saving blood that was shed for us. It is in the precious name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we ask it all. And all God's children said, Amen.